hello, friends, and welcome to Transmissions, the Class Unity podcast. We're here today with uh, my co-host, Stephanie Kay uh, from DC, and our guest is Alex Shah, the co-founder and staff writer with Class Collective Magazine. Literature for the masses is the tagline there. Alex is a writer and researcher based in Toronto, Canada. He holds both a bachelor's and a master's degree in political science. His interests at the moment include the normative gap in Marxist theory, Buddhist philosophy, and the political rise of China. Alex, welcome to Class Unity Transmissions. Thanks for having me. I appreciate uh, having me on. Oh, you're very, very welcome. We are, we've been excited to, to have you on and been looking forward to it very much. So um, let's start with you and let's start with uh, Class Collective, which you describe as an annual literary magazine that illuminates the class struggles hidden in the shadows of our culture. I want to ask you about that, uh, Alex, but also I, uh, I cannot proceed any further without marking the fact that it is May Day. Uh, so happy May Day to you. Happy May Day to Stephanie as well. Happy May Day. Happy May Day. Uh, <laughs> Alex, can you tell us a little bit more about uh, Class Collective, its origins, its members? I suppose that includes yourself. And um, what, what May Day means to you and your publication. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so Class Collective Magazine, uh, it launched earlier this year uh, as a project uh, between myself and my partner, Krista Montiel. Um, and we're both uh, based in Toronto. So it's a Toronto-based magazine. Um, it's a quite small magazine at the moment, um, just run by us two, um, who are also working full-time. Um, but what really uh, provoked us to set it in motion was uh, a desire to showcase writing that really illustrated or encompassed elements of class and class society, uh, whether fiction or nonfiction. So we present both. Um, and it emerged uh, after Krista and I both recognized that uh, there was really a dearth of literary inspired publications um, that really situated class at the center of their writing. Uh, so we define ourselves as broadly Marxist um, in orientation, but you know we're not particularly sectarian uh, and we're open to highlighting all varieties of writing um, just so long as they're you know at least class adjacent uh, writing. So, um, and yeah, as you mentioned, our tagline um, is to illuminate the class struggles hidden in the shadows of our culture. And we believe that, you know, class and class relations are all pervasive, right? This is a fundamental insight of Marx uh, and one that we take very seriously. So in our media, in our institutions, in our political economy, class is a, is a facet of our everyday existence that, um, you know, especially over the previous half century has really been neglected uh, to a really staggering degree um, and erased really from our consciousness. So, um, what we endeavor to do is really reveal all the different manifestations of class in society uh, and through the written word. Um, and thankfully, you know, we're not alone. Uh, in recent years, we've had organizations, you know, like your own <laughs> servicing that are really making an effort to center class once again. Um, and, and just, uh, you know, just speaking about May Day, um, which, you know, I'm very excited about, uh, it represents, I think, to me and to our magazine, um, just how and why tradition is so critical for a leftist project. Uh, not just tradition in a very you know parochial sense with ties to a particular group of people or nation, but what's really beautiful about May Day is that it's it's universality, right? It's the fact that we have this rich, expansive history and experience of camaraderie that we can really draw on to inspire our own work moving forward, and you know that includes the work at our magazine. Steph. Oh yeah, of course. So you recently published an interview with Class Inter Class Unity on the middle class problem. Um, for the lucky devils who are not 
really uh, closely familiar <laughs> with what the problem is. Can can you <laughs> just give us a, some general background and um, talk a little more about the problem as as class collective sees it? Yeah, for sure. Um, so I just want to preface this by saying that um, I'm articulating a largely North American perspective, right? We know that these class dynamics reveal themselves differently across the world, right? So. For instance, in America, there's a much larger and louder middle class than a state like India, right? Um, and so, you know, this 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 left middle class problem is is I think nothing new, right? It was elucidated by Marx a long time ago, um, and you know, although he may have predicted, you know, the middle class will diminish in size, um, what we have seen is that uh, the middle class has managed over and over again to continue to recreate itself in different forms. Um, so, yeah. yeah. So I think the, the issue stems from this really irrefutable fact, right? It's that the interests of the working class and the middle class are divergent. And that's not to say mm -hmm. that there isn't a potential for overlap. It's not to say that the middle class can't be instrumental in a working class project. Uh, but the problem is, as Mark said, right, that they have divided interests between the proletariat and bourgeoisie. Um, so the question is, what happens when the left becomes a movement characterized by this influx of the middle class? And I think fundamentally, um, we would see, we would naturally expect a shift materially um, in, in what's occurring, right? So the middle class, by their nature, they're uh, often fear fearful of downward mobility. Um, their concern is often, you know, maintaining that trajectory of being upwardly mobile. Uh, and that means that their concerns are going to be different, right? They're going to be different from the concerns of the working class, uh, and their lives are going to be oftentimes divorced from the lives of the working class. Um, and so their political interests of the middle class will often, as we've seen, right, gravitate towards things like open borders, abolishing the police, um, a lot of utopian inspired projects that don't really threaten their career ambitions and material circumstances in the here and now. Right. Um, likewise, you know, you'll find uh, the middle class left will frequently take on this sort of moralizing character, right? They create uh, what I think is these kind of Schmidtian friend enemy distinctions um, that, you know, you, you have to agree to, to X, Y, or Z socially progressive shibboleth or you're ostracized essentially for it. Um, and, you know, we, we can ask, right? So what, what accounts for this, right? Why, why is this happening? And I think that that whole moralizing doctrine is really inspired by, by liberal thought, right? Because liberals are the ones who tend to moralize because um, they have this idealist as opposed to materialist orientation, right? So liberals have this bright idea in their head of what a world should look like, which, you know, it may not be a bad image in their head, right? But they have this image and they attempt to mold society around them to fit the confines of that image. Um, but what that really looks like in practice, right, is this sort of individualist ontology that these left liberals have, right, when it comes to viewing the world. So anytime, for instance, there's an occurrence of racism or sexism or anything really important like this, right, what they'll reactively do is they'll target uh, and blame individuals for that behavior, right? And they'll direct their ire at the, the bad ideas they possess, right? Which must be extirpated at all costs. That's really the liberal way of going about it, right? Um, which is really this uh, a massive irony, right? Because the middle-class left loves to pontificate about structural racism, which is very real, absolutely, right? Um, but when they witness someone demonstrating racist behavior or what they consider to be racist behavior, they make a concerted effort to name and shame them, right? As individuals. And it's this carceral and really, you know, what I think is a hyperpunitive instinct that is entirely reactive because it's failing to, to recognize that structural racism runs both ways, right? It's uh, those who hold those racist beliefs have arrived at those beliefs from existing structures and from imbibing ideas that are really deeply rooted within our material society. Um, so, you know, it's, 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 it's this phenomenon now that we see among this, amongst this uh, middle-class left that, um, you know, crusading against different 
um, conservative proletarians, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. which, you know, they, they, they may have this rightful anger, right? Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, the, the problem is that a lot of these conservative proletarians, um, they may hold these, what, what they may consider to be, you know, regressive views, while a lot of the, uh, you know, typical bourgeoisie now, especially in America, hold what is considered to be these liberals, you know, really great beliefs, right? Cosmopolitanism, um, enthusiastically supporting Black Lives Matter, waving the LGBT flag, right? So you have this situation where a truck driver who may not care for immigrants, right, mm-hmm. is more of a concern mm-hmm. for these uh, left liberals than an LGBT flag waving head of a global financial organization, right? And this is, yeah. I think, the, the major problem we have. Thanks, Alex. Thanks for that, Alex. The um, inter- I won't just turn attention now maybe to... to um, expand some of those ideas perhaps uh, by directing our conversation to the interview you carried out with Class Unity. And uh, one of the questions you asked, you you asked us at the time uh, concerned the, concerned one of our founding principles, class politics, not identity politics. And, And obviously there's a number of different ways to approach this, this question of the role of identity politics for the left. But can you talk a little bit about whether or how this question comes up for your own organization, your your publication class collective must surely have its own theoretical waypoints that it that has that has sort of inspired it and guided um, in developing its own unique approach to some of these issues. Right. Yeah, no, that's a that's a great question. Yeah, I think, um, you know, a certain form of identity politics, um, which, you know, I wouldn't I wouldn't designate it as identity politics, but what is you know considered identity politics mm. can be applied tactfully, can be effective in organizing, right? So, for instance, uh, rallying individuals by appealing to what they're most familiar with, right? Whether it's their religion or collective experience belonging to a particular race, you know. Um, but identity politics, as espoused today, you know, is very distant from this, right? It's a, it's a form of politics that emerged largely from the 80s and 90s after what was perceived to be a failure of, of class politics in decades prior, right? So. This form of identity politics, what I think is it represents a sort of internal soul searching for the left, right? Mm. It's rising out of a deep frustration, a warranted frustration, um, and a real need to interrogate the weaknesses of the left. Um, But this is, I think, part of the irony, right? Because to some in the the middle class left, they may feel like they're winning, right? Because socially progressive discourse has seeped so dramatically into our social lives. Um, People are more cognizant of racism and sexism. People are using their preferred pronouns in their bios. Mm -hmm. This so-called, you know, radical language really saturates our political landscape, right? So to to these liberal leftists, it may look like, you know, wow, the left is on the ascendance right now. This is great, right? But of course, we know materially this is hardly true. Mm. Uh, A left on the ascendancy would mean that the working class is actually gaining power over capital tangibly, right? But this has yet to materialize. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So then the question becomes, why isn't identity politics working? And I think part of it is that it doesn't really threaten or even challenge power or capital, right? So it's not a coincidence that liberals have adopted identity politics and its whole vernacular so readily. Uh, No movement can really be radical um, unless it constrains power, right? That's the nature of radicalism. Um, So identity politics, who does it constrain, right? Corporations, NGOs, academia, they've locked up the discourse and adopted it really zealously. Um, And so some may argue that, you know, the, the response to this often is that, well, this form of identity politics has worked historically, right? Just, um, you know, it's it's played a role in challenging power. Um, you know, l- take a look at the civil rights movements and, and things like that. Right, right, right. This is the kind of maybe so-called um, do both approach, right? Uh, yeah. it, it, do you have a particular view on that aspect of it? Or I, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but that is just a, it seemed like a unique opportunity to ask you that. 
No, no, that's absolutely right. Yeah, I think that's, I think what it is, it's a confusion, right? Because I think that the civil rights movement and the Black Lives Matter movement are, for instance, very different beasts, right? Mm-hmm. They, people assume there's a direct lineage from the civil rights movement course, to Black Lives Matter. Of course, first, Right? Yeah. These movements have, you know, a few uh, uh, differences in, in very core respects, right? So the civil rights movement was part of a long populist tradition in American history, right? This is because their, their rightful indignation at the injustices they face were expressed within the frame of citizenship, right? So their whole central claim was akin to something like, you know, we demand equal rights because we're Americans just like you. Uh, and that's how a lot of anti-colonial struggles were formulated as well, right? You know, we in Cuba are a nation just like America is a nation. So we desire the same degree of sovereignty, for instance, right? Well said. Yeah, but but, but Black Lives Matter and many of these, um, any other really identity movements, they make a, a sort of epistemic shift of sorts, right? Where uh, the call for justice is not couched in the language of citizenship, for instance, right? It's, uh, it's couched in the language of identity itself. So this discourse makes a subtle shift, right? So the civil rights movement understood that, you know, being a member of a marginalized group didn't automatically confer sainthood or moral authority upon anyone, right? You had to earn your dignity through your actions. Meanwhile, these contemporary identitarian movements, they've really adopted uh, what's, uh, what a lot of people are calling standpoint epistemology, right? Where the dignity, your dignity emerges out of your very identity itself. Hmm. Um, and the struggle can only be understood by people within that identity group. Um, this is where guess, notions like, like um, you know, s- centering voices of a certain sort of marginalized right. s- segment becomes the, the the sort of watchword of the of the movement, right? Right. You yeah, must which, center which this so. voice, or you must center that voice. Yeah. Amplify the voices which, of your the the function of an ally is to amplify that voice. Right. Yeah, which which sounds great on paper, right? But um, it's it's not it's not really I think the most auspicious approach when it comes to building. Um, solidarity, right? So the history of solidarity and revolution has been absolutely filled with crossing lines that were initially drawn up by those in power to, to siphon us off from one another. Mm. Um, and the, I think the entire project of Marxism is really getting workers to to see beyond what separates them, to some to come to some sort of cognizance that uh, about what tethers them together, which is their common experience as workers, right? So what we have now are, are these sort of disconnected social movements, the feminist movement, the gay rights movement, the BLM movement, who have nothing in common, but whose only coherent demand really aims at uh, the inclusion of the dominant structures of society, right? They want to belong to those dominant structures. Whereas, you know, a Marxist project is all about revolutionarily transforming those structures themselves, right? Um, so because the class dynamic is, is absent, um, you know, you have the goals of these movements being things that are totally uh, lack relevance for the working class, right? This whole trend of like, you know, lean-in feminism, things that are not particularly um, viable for, for working class people. Mm. Um, so I think that also, you know, just to add to that, there's a reason why this project has grown so fervently. And that's what I think um, your organization has really highlighted so well, right? Because um, the sort of right-wing response to this is to identity politics is, you know, they see it as an issue, but they they have no material understanding of why it actually emerged, right? Mm. They think it's also, again, just like the liberals, right? Mm-hmm. It's, oh, we just have to exterminate these bad ideas. It's just a, these bad <laughs> idea, identity politics ideas, we have to yeah. get rid of it, right? Yeah. Um, which is so funny because they... They, uh, you know, claim that there's so much against the liberals, but they're, you know, they're, they're partners in crimes, right? So, but like your organization has highlighted, right? Um, we have to understand why it's emerged. And that, again, ties to the previous question about it's a product of this whole middle class uh, leftism, right? When more middle class people infiltrate um, leftist movements and organizations, um, the issues are going to change. And one of the circumstances that changes is this focus on identity politics, right? So it's really, a, it, it should not really be that much of a surprise, right? Um so now it's meant that the target of the left is 
changing from the ruling bourgeoisie to you know cis people, white people, from the abolition of wage labor to um, this really amorphous goal of of that I've seen a lot of people mention, right, of defeating whiteness, you know, tackling whiteness, which is just as silly and nebulous of a notion as like, you know, fighting terrorism, right? In, in the early 2000s, right? we have to fight terror, this, this ambiguous term that really means nothing and can be fought anywhere. You can find it anywhere, but no one knows tangibly what it means, right? Yeah. Um, and I guess that's just, you know, the total mystification of, of class relations. So, yeah. Thank, thanks, Alex. Um, so Class Collective is Canadian. And I'm wondering if the Canadian experience offers any lessons in particular from your perspective for those of us in the U.S. who are interested in workplace organizing. And if we were to approach this from the uh, perspective that there's this iron triangle, this uh, there are the, these institutions, um, academia, media, and NGOs that dominate the left um, and really put forth... Uh, this uh, new brand of leftis leftism that we're seeing, leftist politics that we're seeing in North America. Um, what, so what extent would you say the Iron Triangle plays a role um, in th this issue in, in Canada? Um, and could you talk about any su success stories in addressing the issue from a Canadian socialist perspective? Yeah, I mean, uh, I think, of course, there are ample parallels, right, between America and Canada. Um, I think we've adopted a lot of our political vocabulary directly from the states, right? And a lot of, you know, empirical studies actually show that uh, Canadians are more well-versed in American politics and even history than, than anything that's happening domestically, right? So very highly influenced by the states. Um, and I was actually speaking recently with an American um, who has been living in Canada for the past decade, right? So um, a very valuable opinion on these kind of things. And uh, his impression was, and I think it's right, right, that in America, there's a sort of greater inclination to be suspicious of the Iron Triangle, right? It, if you sort of identify yourself in the U.S. as a progressive, you're much more likely to reactively distrust a lot of what's being pushed by the mainstream media and different institutions. Um, and that's where I think uh, things differ a little bit, right? Because in Canada, there's inherently a lot more trust in our institutions and our government more broadly, right? Which can be a good thing and a bad thing. Uh, it can be both, right? So, also with things like our media landscape, right? It is different than America and it has its own idiosyncrasies, right? So for instance, you know, like many Commonwealth countries, we have our own state-sponsored uh, media model in the BBC, right? We have uh, a media landscape that is dominated by what us Canadians call the big three, which is these three massive conglomerations called uh, Rogers, Bell and TELUS, which are the three big telecom companies that entirely dominate the internet, the phone, the television, the media in our country. Um, so our landscape is a little bit different and levels of trust are higher, but, uh, and you know, what that means is we're not really plagued by this, by the same levels of polarization that the states are plagued with, I think. Um, but you know, what that means is we have a more placated population, right? And, and that's reflected, I think, in our government. So I could speak a bit about how politics actually differs. Um, and I think, uh, the difference is that, you know, we've really never had a socialist surge like America did, uh, uh when Bernie Sanders emerged, right? So... I mean, we watched from the sidelines. We we witnessed the normalization of, of socialist rhetoric and discourse, um, which definitely made its way across the border and shaped a lot of young people over here. But I think the dynamic has been a lot more muted in Canada, right? So we, we never had our own version of, of a Bernie Sanders-like figure. We never had something like the rapid rise of, of DSA membership, right? Um, of course, we do have socialist organizations operating across the country, but their influence, you know, frankly, is, is, is quite marginal, right? So... Um, and in America, we saw these really like uh, divisive breaks in the political arena. We saw the election of Trump. We saw the rise of Sanders. But 
nothing similar has really transpired here. No big breaks have occurred, right? In the conservative party here, it's just one clone after another, right? You have the liberals here who have occupied a, like a fairly hegemonic uh, place right now in politics. Um, and as to why that is, right? I mean, there are a couple of reasons, but um, I suspect part of it is that we already have this uh, so-called social democratic party here, right? We have this uh, party called the NDP or the new democratic party, um, which really has managed to monopolize all the energy, all the momentum of a real working class movement. Uh, but the problem is at this point, right? They're virtually indistinguishable from the liberals, right? When it comes to running as a federal party, um, there's there's not much of a meaningful distinction there. Um, and I think, so that's one reason. I think the other one is that um, why socialist movement has not really ripened here is because, um, and I want to put this delicately, right? But I think that things are not as bad here as they are in the States in the sense that, you know, income inequality has risen substantially, but not to the same extent as, as the US, right? Um, we have still a much higher union density here, right? When you look about statistics about changes in union, union density over the past few decades, Canada, along with a few countries like France, it's it's been quite low compared to compared to the states. Um, we also have you know more annual work stoppages. Uh, we have I think we're in the OECD countries number one or two in terms of you know uh, having a post secondary degree. So the dynamics are a little bit different here, right? And we've seen that manifest in things like you know a higher minimum wage in states or a little bit more workplace concessions and things like that, right? But um, Again, the problem with that is it's, it results in a real uh, pacification of the population and this sort of really like notorious pathology in Canadian society that, uh, and every Canadian knows this, right? That we derive a lot of our sense of identity out of the fact that we're not America, right? We're not as terrible <laughs> as America. Uh, and it's like, it's, it's incredibly frustrating, right? Because it's, it's uh, at this point, you know, such an antiquated like cultural feature of Canada where like any confrontation with our own problems is not really taken seriously or is assuaged by the fact that you know, we don't have people shooting each other here. We don't, you know, we have healthcare here. Um, right. So, you know, right. it's, it's not, yeah, it's not really that bad. Um, but, you know, like the reality is that um, just like the States, right? The frequency of strikes and militant labor activity has plummeted since the seventies here as well, right? We face stag stagnant wages, right? We face horrendous living conditions, especially um, the housing crisis, which is, uh, you know, across Canada, it's, it's a really big issue, right? So um, I guess we can only hope, I mean, I don't have answers in terms of like, you know, what I can expect for the future, but, um, you know, I think at some point these contradi contradictions will will bubble up, right, and, and surface in Canadian politics and maybe introduce a potential for change in the future. But, you know, that's all I can say about it. Thanks, Alex. I do have a follow-up question. Um, what kind of reaction do you typ typically get when you talk to fellow leftists about class collective perspective on identity politics? Right. No, that's actually, that's actually a good question. Yeah. Um, well, I think uh, I think it depends who you're speaking to. Uh, if I'm speaking to my friends or people uh, in my demographic, so university educated uh, people for the most part, um, the reaction is not going to be so positive, right? Because they've been indoctrinated with this, um, you know, like we mentioned before, this very liberal idea of, um, you know, intersectionality, um, the idea that, you know, why not do both? You know, identity politics is, is one in one with class politics. Um, so I don't, I don't get the most uh, positive reaction from them, but opposingly, right. When I speak to people, uh, like my parents, right. Who are immigrants, um, and people who are a little bit older, uh, and people who do not, you know, necessarily have university degrees, the response is very different. Right. And I think it's because unlike what a lot of university educated people think, most people's politics is incredibly contradictory, right. People do not have, um, uh, a, a very, uh, a politics that makes a lot of sense in a lot of ways. Right. So my parents, right. They for instance, will shift between 
voting for or, or you know thinking that you know the conservative party is the way to go to the next election thinking the ndp is the way to go right, right? it's it's a very it, it's on the surface isn't coherent but in some ways it is right because a lot of a lot of uh, immigrants like them right are not the most socially progressive but you know they believe in a sort of populist economic model and they believe in things that you know you know, free, free, free tuition, you know, that's great, you know, um, higher wages, you know, why, why fight against that, right? Um, but a lot of the, a lot of the language and vocabulary that, you know, is very unfamiliar to them, that's, uh, that's where they sort of, you know, kind of stray, right? Because intersectionality, you know, my, my parents have no idea what that is, right? If you start um, going up to them and speaking about that, they'll, they'll be like, you know, they'll, they'll have no clue, right? And I think part of that is um, the fact that the left isn't supposed to you know, when they bring workers together, right? You don't start by bringing workers together around a shared set of values, right? Anti-capitalism, gay rights, these things, right? You don't start with that. You first and foremost bring workers together around their immediate economic self-interests, right? That's not a value claim. That, that's an empirical claim about how mobilization works, right? You don't you don't begin by using this really academia-soaked vocabulary that's alien to people. Um, at the same time, you don't, you know, sheepishly, sheepishly, uh, take in and in, uh, these values that, you know, are espoused by the working class and say like, you know, great, we'll adopt these views. No, you don't do that either. Right. But it just means coming in with a strong sense of compassion and understanding and, and recognizing that, you know, views um, that we may find repugnant are not born out of these individuals themselves, right. These it's born out of society at large. Right. So I think, uh, I think that's the key, right. Starting with the economic self-interest is really the key. Yeah. And, and that's how we build confidence. Right. I mean, it's, it's a, it becomes less a question of like, whether the worker has or hasn't a certain degree of false consciousness and rather stepping up the, the, the left, so to speak, has to uh, uh, undertake this arduous task of, of, of being the party that persuasively becomes the vehicle for the transformation of people's lives. If, if they're not confident in us, and our abilities to, to, to do the job that we're claiming to be able to do for them, Who's, why are they to blame um, for, for looking elsewhere for their solutions? It's, it's not necessarily any indication of, of any lack of reason of, on their part. I, although, as you say, of course, many do have questionable views. Um, those views may, may, may change in the longer term as trust in, in other parts of the community develop. But, you know, if we don't start with the idea that, that um, you know, we, we need to be the vehicle that they can trust to to address their interests, then we're not, I think we're not having the right conversation. So Tone altogether, Alex. Uh, you know something fun that I noticed about your magazine is its, uh, it, 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 you know, really impressive literary sensitivity. Um, there's a lot of poetry, a lot of prose here, and I guess maybe for some, um, that's going to look like a rather kind of middle class predilection, right? You know, maybe even a little decadent, <laughs> you know, especially from these dis perspectives that we were discussing as a problem for the left earlier. But but you're very unapologetic, I think, about this, the, the, the function of literature and poetry on your website. And of course, I think we're all aware from Dickens to Oscar Wilde to Bertolt Brecht, the left has always had a literature 
right? So just wondering what what brought your magazine into a relationship? Why, why, why did you go this route? And um, maybe, maybe you can tell us a little bit about working class poetry and, and, and wh- why we need to take it seriously. Oh, it's a, it's a fantastic question. Yeah. I think um, first on, on your point of, you know, this, um, this claim of decadence, right? Um, I think uh, you're right that the left is a, uh, has been oftentimes suspicious of things like you know, for instance, the literary canon, right? Because they, um, the accusation is that they're upholding and disseminating these these bourgeois attitudes and values, right? But I think what's oftentimes forgotten is that uh, many times, uh, in fact, almost always, the writers of these uh, uh, of the canon, right? They are the ones who often are critiquing the values of the canon themselves the most, right? We think of things in the canon, right? Plato's Republic running contra to all the values of Athenian democracy at the time. You think of uh, the brothers Karamazov, right? Probably the most cogent and visceral indictment against Christianity ever written. Um, and that's the canon, right? So what, what our magazine kind of uh, wanted to respond to was, uh, was this trend, not just exclusively to the left, but the literary world more widely, right? Of abandoning the idea itself of canonical or historically enduring work and replacing it increasingly with what I see is this more solipsistic poetry and writing, poetry that's really purely inward looking and writing that's often disconnected from the real world, right? So I think that um, I would argue that that whole attitude that, you know, canonical writing, you know, just leave it to the bourgeoisie, um, that's just another, that attitude is just another mechanism employed by the bourgeoisie to strip society of the opportunity to really engage with great art, right? Um, there was a time not too long ago where when workers and marginalized people in America had access to and frequently read good writing, right? Neil Postman, who I, who I love, right? He writes quite convincingly of this, right? About mm. how America had such a thriving literary culture in the 19th and early 20th century, right? right. Notably, yeah, notably amongst the working class. Um, and so today we hear things like, you know, oftentimes about changing the college uh, syllabus, right? Changing the can, uh, challenging the canon, which I think is great, right? That's absolutely warranted. Um, and it's great to incorporate authors from the global South um, from different gender and racial perspectives. Um, but the problem is that oftentimes what people read this as is, you know, replacing authors like, you know, Tolstoy, Dante, Dickens with, you know, merely contemporary authors who may not, you know, have the same literary marriage, right? So seldom will you ever find things like incorporating Langston Hughes into the curriculum, right? Or anyone part of the American proletarian poetry movement or things from the literary realism tradition, right? Instead, we get this idea where, you know, uh, anything you introduce and anything that's, you know, leftist writing has to be purely didactic. It has to be militant. It has to be polemical. Um, When in actuality, and this is to your point about, you know, leftist writing, working class writing, right? There's this long and great tradition of leftist writers who are champions of communism, champions of the working class and revolution. But I would say more importantly, right, they possessed astounding literary sensibilities, right? That's that's what got them, you know, so much interest, right? And I think there's that long tradition, right? I think a few writers and poets that I really, I really admire from around the world, right? Um, there's this Turkish poet named uh, Nazim Hikmet, which is, you know, fantastic. Um, there's uh, the famous Pakistani poet Faiz Ahmad Faiz, which is, you know, and, and more familiar names, right? Like Pablo Neruda, the Chilean poet, uh, Mahmoud Darwish, which was from Palestine, who spoke a lot about issues, you know, very relevant to Palestine, um, Cesar Vallejo from Peru. So many of the, this is part of this, this grand tradition that we have that, you know, we're not really fostering, right? And I think uh, going to your point more about, you know, what is this intrinsic link, right, between uh, poetry and leftism or poetry and communism more broadly, right? 
Uh, and that's where I often think of Alain Badiou, who wrote, you know, quite rightly, I think that there's actually an essential link between poetry and communism. If we understand communism to be, in a primary sense, right, a concern for what is common to all, right? Communism believes that what should be common and accessible to all should not be appropriated by, by capital or, you know, servants of capital. But likewise, the poet desires that all the things in life, right, uh, whether the sky, the sunset, the moonlight, all these things belong to the whole world, right? And poetry really in its most basic form is just language, right? It's what Lacan called the symbolic order. It's it's what we use to, to express our desire and feelings. It's how we communicate to other people. Um, so what poetry does, like really all it does is allow us to play and toy around with that language. And because of that really uh, infinite malleability of language, poetry, you're right, has the capacity to do both. It can suffer from decadence, sure, um, but what, which is what we observe in a lot of contemporary poetry. But likewise, it also has that capacity to really challenge prevailing ideas, to electrify the masses, to, to shift people's consciousness. And you know, there's a reason why many socialist revolutionaries and revolutions saw literacy as the key to freedom. So that's, I think, all tied into, um, yeah, to, to, to literature and, and the connection. Thanks, Alex. I was going to ask a question about the the overlap between working class poetry and leftist poetry, and uh, the importance of, I guess, the perspective of the worker uh, throughout the throughout the ages in literature. But I think that you actually summed it up really really nicely. Um, so, just one question: uh, Are there any contemporary le leftist or working class poets with a class politics, who you would like to draw our attention to, or he would like to put in a plug for? Yeah, so for that one, I'm going to give a slightly cheeky answer and say that uh, you should really check out the, <laughs> our magazine. I took a look. I didn't have time to read any of the short stories, but I will I will definitely do that today. That's, for, yeah, that's yeah, class, I mean, collectivemag.com, everyone, in case anyone's right, interested. Yeah. <laughs> we, try, we try to feature some some good uh, contemporary writers who who really can attest to, to, attest to that. So. Um, yeah, that'll, that'll be my plug. <laughs> cool. Thanks, Alex. Um, Alex, in um, in February, um, you ran a fascinating interview with uh, the Midwestern Marx Collective. The, the the piece was entitled on, on building a socialist America. You know, I think one of the interesting tensions explored in the piece is this kind of complication within the left between, uh, on the one hand, a pro-State Department reflex that I think many leftists succumb to insofar as they um, hesitate before fully critiquing what, 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 what many of us would sort of see as a, a U.S. imperialist posture towards China, towards Russia, because of course, you know, rightly, I suppose, or understandably, I suppose, you know, many as many of us are concerned with with human rights and, um, you, you know, c civil liberties. Um, but then there's also, on the other hand, a kind of um, a, a radical death to America, ultra leftist position on on foreign policy, which tends to reduce everything America does to, I don't know, white settler colonialism, imperial adventurism. So we have this kind of complicated contradiction here. And I noticed that as a way of getting out of this contradiction, your guests proposed uh, that we pay some attention to dialectics in foreign policy. And I was just wondering, you know, firstly, was this piece written before the Russian invasion of Ukraine? And whether now, in light of recent events, 
you think that Marxist dialectics could help provide some clues as to how we should approach this this contradiction in attitudes amongst the left to to U.S. foreign policy today? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a that's a really uh, critical question. Um, and yeah, the interview was published uh, prior to the invasion. Mm. Um, but I guess yeah, I could speak first about that dialectical approach that you mentioned, um, which I think fundamentally is all about seeing the world as, uh, for one, interconnected, um, contradictory, um, and sort of functioning as a as a dynamic whole, right? So, um, and that's precisely what both those tendencies that you mentioned really fail to grasp, um, because. Both those ideas tend to view the world as almost a moral dichotomy, right? They see the international arena as a fight between the good guys and the bad guys. Right. Uh, when in reality, we live in a really uh, in an and a system of anarchy, right? So in, in a system which is a capitalist mode of production. So nations and, and capitalists they don't navigate the world primarily as moral agents, right? Uh, whether you're a realist who believes that states are just vying for power, or a Marxist who believes that capitalists are seeking to accumulate more capital. Either way, there's a materialist drive that compels countries to do what they do, right? And sometimes this can actually inadvertently lead to peace, right? So post-World War II, the U.S. treated Germany and Europe favorably, uh, helped build up their economies. Right. But, you know, that wasn't that wasn't out of the good of their heart, right? It wasn't because of anything like that. It was a consequence of Cold War rationality and opposing the Soviet Union global communism. And that helped lead to the uh, World War II post-economic uh, boom. But at the same time, obviously, and this is where the contradiction comes in, it can lead to utter destruction. So during that same period, you had um, what was, you know, these imperialist ambitions in the global south that were that were devastating. Um, but ultimately, what dialectics does, right, it allows you to take those contradictions and actually um, and grasp them and to understand them. And it lets you see the world not as, you know, consisting of these rigid boundaries and stable boundaries, but as consisting as of an infinite number of processes that are going on an infinite number of times. Um, and that's really the tradition that, you know, Marx got from Heraclitus, from Spinoza, from Hegel, it's been passed down. Um, and to specifically, you know, get less philosophical and more to the point about um, what's going on here with imperialism, I think, um, you're right that uh, those who refuse to critique uh, the U.S.'s imperialist wars abroad, right, they often do so by um, defending this really illusory idea of the liberal world order, right, which was something invented by America to set forth these global standards and rules that benefited themselves, right? And as we know, the U.S. can dispose of those rules anytime they wish, right? Even the term liberal international order um, that we're so familiar with was coined in the 70s, right, as a response to the third world really demanding um, a new international economic order. Mm -hmm. um, and even, even in the same way, rules-based order, right, which is the more recent uh, phrase, it only emerged in the 90s, right, after uh, America found this new sense of, of, of hegemony, right? Um, it's a child so of that's the, one, the end of history then in that sense. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's one tendency, right? And then um, the other one is, like you mentioned, to reduce the U.S. to its sins, right? Uh, but those, this is the irony, right? Those people are also... Um, acting under a similar idealistic belief, right? So, so you know, certainly the U.S. in our present day is the largest commuter, committer of, of global violence, right? It, it carries out these egregious uh, imperialist actions abroad uh, and has an abhorrent human rights uh, record, right? But why is that, right? Is Part of it, of course, is its stature on the global stage, right? It's the biggest power so it can get away with it. Um, but how did it end up that way, right? Why, why is it in that position? And a lot of that, you know, has to do with historically contingent factors, right? So this whole, this whole, you know, America's strictly a white settler colonialism project discourse, right? That's against the left showing off its liberal proclivities, right? Because it treats America and the West as, you know, broadly immutable categories, right? Not as products of history, right? Which are very contingent. 
Um, and it fails to really understand what, what Clausewitz uh, wrote and which, which I think is correct, right? That war is a political instrument. Any state and people can wield an instrument, right? Imperialism has no necessary connection to any particular country um, anywhere around the world, right? And so that then takes us to, to the larger question of Ukraine and Russia, right? How should we, um, given all that background knowledge, how should we feel about what's going on there? Um, and so I think you have, again, these two contingencies, right? So one side will revere Zelensky, right? Treats him like a hero, um, while another smaller uh, contingency will, you know, treat Russia and their whole zealous anti-Nazification mission as totally warranted, right? And I think both fundamentally are wrong um, because both sides are treating this war as a moral crusade, right? Yeah. So in terms of Zelensky, right? He's far from a liberal paragon of values, right? He's banned a number of official political parties. Um, right. His government has had, his, his government has had state languages um, outlawed mm -hmm. and the Russian language outlawed from public life. Mm -hmm. um, the so-called Orange Revolution led to the killing of many trade unionists um, and the rise of the Ukrainian far right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the arrival of a leader that was not democratically elected, right? Yes. Um, so at the same time, right, those who vaunt, you know, Zelensky's leadership, um, they also fail to apprehend why Putin would invade Ukraine, right? It's it's this sort of, you know, they think it's this aggressive pathology of like, you know, he just has this disdain for human life. You know, he's uh -huh. he's just a crazy guy. You know, he got COVID and he turned crazy all of a sudden, right? Um, so it all turns into sort of a, a, a sort of an armchair psychologization of uh, Putin's personal subjectivity as a yeah, our toxic masculinity as, as, uh, exactly right, yeah <laughs> so so uh you, you know you you lose any kind of sense of, you know firstly of history as you said a moment ago but secondly the the pos the very possibility that there may be actual uh interest based uh objections to uh, the, 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 the rules-based order, as you pressed it, as pressed it a minute ago, and that that rules-based order itself might be the expression of actual interests, um, and not, uh, some benevolent, uh, you know, morally neutral, uh, uh, framework for, uh, the resolution of international, uh, disputes. So, you know, the, 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 the specifically American perspective, um, becomes naturalized as, as a sort of a, a, a neutral, uh, arena as constitutive of a neutral arena, wherein everyone of course naturally wants to play the game because that's the game. Right. And, and, and the idea that Russia has a a different perspective um which which may be you know w worthy of critique in its own right but nevertheless constitutes an actually different perspective just completely drops out it has to be a psychological issue it has to be putin's toxic masculinity etc cetera, etc cetera. yeah that's uh that's perfectly said yeah exactly i think um like you mentioned right history history uh is the first victim of all this right because it gets totally ignored um, especially, you know, NATO's aggressive push into Eastern Europe, right? That's totally um, obfuscated or ignored, right? Um, especially when, you know, U.S. policymakers themselves were warning against those actions uh, and warning that was it was incredibly provocative um, since the 90s, right? 
And we already know, and America already knows that a precedent was already set when, you know, Georgia flirted with joining NATO and, and Putin retaliated, right? Not to mention the annexation of Crimea, right? Which is also a direct response uh, to the U.S. and NATO's support of the uh, overthrow of the Yanukovych government, right? So, and, you know, this is like what we, this is what we have to realize, right? NATO is not concerned with liberality and human rights, right? Something that we oftentimes forget, right, is that um, who, who backed Putin's destructive assault on Chechnya in the late 90s, right? When the city of Grozny got absolutely demolished, right? That was Clinton and Blair, right? Who were congratulating Putin on his subsequent election victory, right? Um, at that time, Russia was considered a loyal subordinate, right? Because it towed the Washington line. Um, we also have to recognize, for instance, that when NATO asserts, you know, Russia's unilateral recognition of Donetsk and Lugansk are unprecedented, they're unacceptable. You know, in 1991, Federal Republic of Germany announced to the whole world its intention to, to proceed with unilaterally recognizing uh, the secessionist states of Yugoslavia, right, uh, Croatia and Slovenia. It was the only, it, you know, the, the government bond at the time, what it was doing was renouncing the legitimacy of an existing state at the time, the Yugoslav state. Um, and it pressured other European countries to do the same thing. And then what did we see weeks later? We saw that, that whole federation crumble. Um, so we have to understand that NATO has no concern for these things. It also has no concern for the for what the people in these states actually have to say. So when 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 Bush and Blair were pushing forward NATO's open door policy in 2008 to Ukraine to Georgia uh, at the Bucharest summit, right at that time, barely 20% of Ukrainians were actually in favor of joining NATO. Majority were actually split between wanting a military alliance with Russia or maintaining a neutral state as enshrined in the Ukrainian constitution. So even even after Russia's annexation of Crimea. Uh, NATO, that, that level was still below 50% of support for NATO. Why is that, right? It's because Ukrainians are not, are not fools, right? They know that NATO status means that they're forfeiting their, their sovereignty, right? And while at the same time increasing tensions with Russia and potentially escalating to, to really um, some terrible internal divisions uh, within Ukraine itself. Um, and not to mention the class element involved, right? NATO, uh, not a lot of people know, right? It's, it's a really regressive force when it comes to their demands for privatization, right? Uh, in countries like Bulgaria, they were forced to break up their telecoms industry, their tobacco industry, uh, as a prerequisite to join NATO. Um, likewise, when, when certain NATOs were actually beginning to sanction Russia after the invasion, countries like Italy and Belgium, uh, they conveniently excluded luxury goods from those sanctions. Um, so the affluent you know, could continue to buy their fur coats and, and gold watches while this was going on. Um, and you know, we have to remember that from Putin's perspective, right? His actions are not committed in isolation. So the US bombing of Serbia, right? And the US invasion of Iraq, instances where uh, sovereignty was violated, uh, the, the sovereignty of small nations were violated. That set a precedent that Putin is merely following the footsteps of, right? Yeah. It's not to say that his, his actions are correct and right, just in the same way that US his actions weren't correct or right, right? But it's a precedent that was already set. Um, not to mention that Russia, you know, even was open to joining NATO initially, but was denied, right? Mm -hmm. So, and I think finally, you know, just the, just as a final point, it gets to something that uh, David Harvey uh, pointed out, which was that in 1991, right, after the Cold War, after the breakup of the Soviet Union, Russia, you know, there was an opportunity there. There was, there was a huge opportunity, but Russia was treated atrociously, right? It was utterly humiliated. The West didn't heed any of the lessons from the Versailles Treaty. Instead of proffering their own Marshall Plan, which is what they instituted in Europe, to build up Russia, to build up their economy, to bring them into the system, they opted instead for lecturing them on the merits of financial probity and neoliberal solutions to all their woes, right? So Famous shock humiliation, therapy. yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and we know that humiliation is a terrible, yeah. terrible tactic 
Um, it may seem to work initially, um, but as with Germany and the Treaty of Versailles and as with Russia today, right, we know that those decisions will always uh, come back to, to haunt you once again. So, yeah. Well said. Well said. Thanks, Alex. Um, on, on that note, uh, we're, since we're talking about NATO, <laughs> um, you wrote a great article for Class Collective in January called Anxiety is on the Rise. And in it, you talk about liberals, liberalism's fetishization of the present and how one result of globalization has been a brutal flattening and homogenization of the world. Um, can you talk about some of the symptoms of this anxiety and um, especially the ones that you think an average person might recognize? Sure, yeah. I mean, um, and I guess that article was primarily focused on um, the anxiety uh, related to death itself. Um, but I think the best way to go about that is, if I may, right, just just going over what the article was all about and um, the arguments that I put forth there. Um so what what it deals with is what uh, uh, this cultural anthropologist named Ernest Becker what he put forward in his work uh, the, the the denial of death which um, basically argues in broad strokes that uh, human civilization is just one elaborate symbolic defense mechanism against the knowledge of our own impermanence essentially right which every human being across the world across religions across time has faced um, so to avoid that that really internal anxiety associated with death. Um, this really in inherent vulnerability that we all have as human beings, we of course, you know, develop strategies um, that are that are natural to, to cope with that. And so we have what can be called, you know, a healthy response. A healthy person may assuage this anxiety through what he refers to as uh, lifelong immortality projects. Uh, and essentially, what that means is, you know, developing our our lives, our symbolic lives, so that we really transcend our our bodies, our corporeal life. Um, in other words, it means sort of developing a lifelong quest or journey towards generating mean, meaning beyond just, you know, our bodies, our bodily existence. Um, and that can happen, you know, through ways that are very familiar to us. To us. So, you know, our accomplishments, building relationships with our community uh, or what have you. Um, because those things, they're the things that really ascribe great value to our lives, right? There's something that gives you an opportunity to really go beyond yourself. Um, and so that death anxiety, Becker thought, was really assuaged when we actually have these carefully constructed beliefs about a shared reality, right? A shared reality that we all embody that really uh, confers meaning and value to our lives, right? So prior to capitalism, this death anxiety, as you can imagine, was not a big issue, right? Because we lived at a time when we had those carefully constructed beliefs that everyone shared. Um, we had social roles that we all embodied that we often had for a whole lifetime, right? In medieval, medieval times, you were given a role and you had that role and you never really got out of that role. So the issue of death anxiety was not was not really a big was not really a big deal, right? We shared uh, a, a similar religion, right? So we had that spiritual connection. Um, but today, of course, I mean, as we know, right, that that shared reality is lost, um, and part of that is sort of this postmodern condition that we live in, right? Because you know, the fact that we've abandoned the idea of this teleological narrative that's you know in Marxism or even in Christianity or, or what have you, right? The idea of of a sort of moral progress is we've lost that, right? And that's not something to to celebrate necessarily because. There are no overarching values that we share, right? And liberalism, which is what you know we live in today, it claims to be neutral on those questions of values, right? Um, its only values of liberalism really are pluralism and a faith in markets, which it basically equates to freedom, right? That's freedom for a liberal. Um, so on paper, right, we we think that you know, oh, you know, great, we have freedom now. We have a lot more freedom than we did in feudal times. We should be able to engage in those immortality projects, right? We should really be able to commit to those, but. What does the reality look like? It's not like that at all, right? Because liberalism, the freedom that it grants is only 
a freedom of license, right? To do what you please, to do what you choose. It gives us, you know, immense choices and options, but is that really freedom, right? Like freedom, it has a lot of tension going on within it, right? Freedom oftentimes requires the total abandonment of license, right? So, because freedom is a negotiation. So if you want the freedom to be a respected member of your community, then you have to give up the freedom to travel around as you please and, to, and, you, and you have to plant yourself down in a particular location. If you want the freedom to raise children, then you have to inhibit yourself from certain irresponsible actions, right? right. If you want the freedom that a union brings you, you're going to have to pay you know, certain mandatory fees or sit in certain, certain meetings that you may not want to sit in. Um, but you know, that's the nature of freedom. It, it's, it's connected to obligations and responsibility. Um, which are very unfamiliar to a lot of people today, right? Um, so, so, yeah. yeah so, um, it's what uh, and what really inspired me is is the writing of uh, of Charles Taylor, which is a who's a philosopher, right? Who who says that we need this uh, horizon of significance, this background that we all can define ourselves against, um, which provides us meaning beyond ourselves. Um, and it's something that you know would be very familiar um, to philosophers like. Like uh, like Hegel and Sartre and Marx and, and these people because they they all understood that we develop our identities intersubjectively through our relationship with other people. Our identities don't come from our heads. They don't come, uh, you know, we're not an island, right? They come from other people. Um, so now when we think about you know this anxiety um, and where it comes from, um, what do we see in in liberal capitalist society, right? We have people with infinite choices. Um, and we're we're told uh, to, to to chase those uh, choices, to chase our most vulgar desires. You know, it's what Becker calls tranquilizing ourselves with the trivial, um, which is why liberalism and capitalism were meant for each other, right? Because capitalism ensures that uh, the world is run by markets. So whatever products we get, it's you know products that sell, um, which is always going to be the lowest denominator junk that gets us addicted to things, right? So think of like Instagram with their algorithms that keep us glued to our phones or fast food that keeps us overweight or pornography that keeps us addicted. Um, so that's capitalism. And then liberalism, on the other hand, um, it stays neutral on the questions of what's actually good to pursue, what, what will lead to a flourishing life. It just says, you know, go out there and, and pick and choose and follow your desires. So that uh, doesn't really, it's not really auspicious to, to living a, a life without anxiety and living a, a healthy life um, because we're going through life uh, uh, operating not as our higher selves, right? Not um, finding meaning outside of ourselves. Um, and that's to the question of, you know, what, 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 is that, what does that look like, right? Um, and what I mentioned in the article was that um, since this rise of neoliberalism and individualism, we see people, you know, increasingly going to the gym as if it's a matter of life and death, right? Of people getting, uh, uh, we've seen a huge rise in plastic and cosmetic surgery, right? scared of growing old. We see adults desperately clinging to their childhoods, right? Um, you know, these Harry Potter fandoms and Disney fandoms of, of you know, that are, you know, embodied by 40 year olds. Um, we've seen you're, billionaires like is, Elon this, Musk. In, I, I, I recently turned 47, Alex, and you're, th th these comments are uh, cutting very close <laughs> to home, I can tell you. <laughs> no, no, not, not to be taken personal. It's a, it's a, it's a society at large. <laughs> But yeah, and 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 you know, like uh, like Elon Musk, right? Trying to leave this earth, literally trying to to flee, um, to 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 flee death, right? Um, but this is not healthy, right? These are not healthy outlets. Um, and how we go about this, I think, is that um, you know, it, it's about building solidarity, right? Because solidarity is is necessary for a flourishing and good life. This this was not something. This is not even a Marxist talking point, right? Um, a lot of early sociology pointed out uh, this fact, right? So Emil Durkheim, right? He he really wrote a lot about how solidarity is necessary for our well-being, right? He noted that suicide rates are much higher 
and individuals uh, that are not connected to their community, to their families, and who don't have a support network. Um, he also famously noted that, you know, this, this paradoxical situation where suicide rates plummet during wartime, right? Why is that, right? Because during a time of war, there's almost this transcendental purpose that sets across the society, right? Because everyone is collectively striving towards the same goal and purpose. Everyone has a, a place in society. Everyone feels valued. Everyone has something they can do towards a particular cause. Now, obviously, we don't want that cause to be war, but we do want that solidaristic experience. And that's exactly where, you know, the Marxism comes in, right? Because um, building solidarity uh, across working class lines uh, is the best way to really fight back against that atomization, fight back against that shattering of social bonds, uh, fight back against precarious work. Um, and, you know, so what we really need to do is, uh, you know, foster and embrace community, um, join with people around you in volunteer organizations and communities, um, you know, and that all comes back to, you know, how we do that is changing the material circumstances, which is, you know, fighting against capitalism and eroding those capitalist values that have been so saturated in our in our society. So that, that was an amazing yeah. answer. <laughs> well yeah. done. Well done. <laughs> Take a breath. Uh, 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 that, that was fantastic. Um, Alex, I, you know, I, I really loved. Well, I loved the whole thing, but I, I was I'm, I've been uh I, as I, you know, given that I'm a nominally at least a professor, a professor, <laughs> that's my, my Irish drunken accent coming out there. Uh, but I'm a professor of, of international relations. And, um, you know, I, I could have, I could have done a whole episode with you on that Ukraine question. The, 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 uh, the, 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 the tremendous difficulty of getting people right now to, to step back from this intuitive disposition towards the, the rules-based order, as you as you put it, um, is mm -hmm. so problematic right now. It is it is such a huge part of what we're doing. I know the psychologization of Putin is a big uh, is a big deal, but but even just stepping away from that, uh, which you know, it, it's it's this kind of idea that like, how dare you? um you know r r ruin the end of history for us right <laughs> you know and 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 and, yeah. and as if as if you know putin slash russia hitler whatever like because it's all getting jumbled up into one it's the russians who are the nazis it's 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 putin who's hitler um but as if um you know as it's as if fallujah never happened yeah uh you know we're no stranger in this country, even in even in the course of our own lifetimes, to American military power being used to completely demolish and destroy entire cities, and yeah. uh, and and no one seems to be able to remember that. Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. I think uh, with Putin especially, right? I think the reason he's um, considered such such a you know threatening figure is. Uh, in some ways, he's, he's kind of an anomaly, right? His speech when he um, initially committed the invasion, right, was very uh, was very much a throwback to almost 19th century politics, right? You know, discussing um, historic peoples, and um, it, it was a rhetoric that is really totally anathema and unfamiliar to the whole end of history rhetoric, right? right. Um, yeah, I think that um, I think part of the problem as well is that his his provocation it, it's so. Um, 
it was so blatant, right? And it's so, so in a lot of minds of people, you know, it really is the disintegration of this, this liberal value system and the end of history. But um, it's not recognizing that a lot of what, you know, America does is not as blatant, right? It's, it's a little bit more, I mean, it has been, but mm-hmm. um, especially in recent years, it's been a lot more invisible, right? So um, we don't see the, um, those intricate uh, and very muted uh, and, you know, hidden forms of destruction that occur on a, on a regular, regular basis. But um, Putin's actions was very sort of decisive and, and, and massive that it really, um, it corralled everyone together. And, and yeah, so it's, mm. it's strange times. <laughs> it's mind blowing. And I don't know yeah, what we're yeah. going to do about it. Yeah. Um, Alex, what, yeah, one last question before we go. Um, so you definitely, you had uh, a really good, um, I, th- I think, perspective on May Day and, you know, is it very uplifting. But like, do you have any, uh, what is the May Day experience like in contemporary Canada? And do you have any May Day anecdotes? Um, I just, like, historically, it seems like you're such a history buff. But one that came to my mind was that, the like, in 1933, the Nazis, like, ordination of May Day as a national holiday, but it was just a bait and switch, right? Because it mm-hmm. wasn't, it wasn't for the workers. It was supposed to be like more about like the, the German worker, you know, <laughs> like it right. wasn't very, it w- definitely wasn't, um, it was far removed, of course, from the, the left-wing tradition. And then the next day they, they uh, outlawed all the trade unions and mm-hmm. uh, took everyone off to the German concentration ca- camps. Um, but like any, does anything come to mind that like, you know, you want to talk about before we let you go just because you're such a history buff? Mm, yeah, no, I mean, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I, unfortunately, I don't think of anything on the top of my head. Um, yeah, the Canadian, and this is a product, like I mentioned before, of just being um, in Canada, being so much more well-versed in American history. The, the disadvantage is you're so much more uh, ignorant of your own. <laughs> um Particularly labor labor history, right? So, yeah. in regards to media, I don't have any specific uh, examples in mind. Um, and just with my own participation in May Day, it's it's been um, uh, like relatively recent. Just because um, I only moved actually to Toronto um, about a month ago, so um, before I was sort of trapped in uh, in suburbia without a vehicle. So my participation in a lot of like uh, mass politics was 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 very limited, right? Just because um, uh, geographic circumstances. But um, where were you, know, you in like Hamilton or somewhere like that? Or, uh i was in like a, i was in durham region okay. so it's uh are you familiar with where that is it's like um, it used to be i used to be a bit more familiar with that part of the world but yeah so it's, it, so it's it's a little bit on the outskirts but um yeah i mean but part of the magazine actually is um you know just to hope that i can um use it um anyway to meet to meet you know lovely people like yourselves <laughs> and, and as a group to meet people in canada as a way to really um jumpstart some actual political action on the ground especially now that i'm i'm based in toronto so that's a that's kind of the hope, but we'll see how it goes. Uh, Alex, I'm, I'm sure I'm speaking for Steph and myself and, and everyone else in, in Class Unity when I say this was a, a really fruitful interview. Uh, is there anything we forgot to ask you, do you think? No, I mean, I just want to say that um, uh, your organization is doing fantastic work and it's something that uh, our magazine really admires. So um, yeah, we're just, uh, and I'm grateful for, for, for you guys having me on. So wonderful. We'll have to have you on again. If you, if you don't mind, maybe you can, as, as your, as your project develops, we can, uh, revisit and, uh, see how it's matured. Uh, I'm certain, uh, your publication has a, has a, has a great future ahead of it. Um, 
Stephanie, any last words? Uh, no, uh, just thank you so much, Alex. Uh, it was really, really great to talk to you. I'm very excited to actually read some of what you've written, um, some of the fiction you've written um, for, for Class Collective. And definitely I would love to have you back and ask you questions about that. Yeah, thanks so much. I would love to. Thanks, Alex. Happy May Day. Happy May Day, everyone. Happy May Day, absolutely. Happy May Day. <laughs> Brilliant.